Trader, a podcast where we trade ideas on race by way of discussing culture. I'm your host, Boston. And I'm Jay. This episode, we'll be discussing Fargo, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen in 1996. Spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen Fargo, pause this episode and watch it. You can drop us a line at bostonandj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, folks. We're covering Fargo. I know. It's a really famous black movie. Uh, Boston, <laughs> why Fargo? I had been watching and listening to a lot of podcasts, and what I saw was a lot of people bring black people on to discuss black films as if they don't have a perspective on white films and a unique one. It's part of the reason why we started this podcast because we wanted a unique perspective on black films from somebody who hadn't necessarily experienced them at the time. And I don't, although we usually save these for white history month, I don't see why we can continue to incorporate these films, a different kind of film from a different kind of perspective. Um, so Fargo, while it's tough to say, you know, in, in main culture, particularly now, a film is, is attributed to a race, but, you know, typically the films that we cover have been films where the director or actors have primarily been African-American. And we discuss those from a racial perspective and, uh, you know, a black guy giving his experience with the movie and a white guy giving his experience with the movie. I think flipping it so we can have a dialogue about a black guy experiencing what would be prototypically a white movie is really, really fascinating. Sure. Coen brothers have been, you know, they're, they're one of my go-to directors for sure. I had the pleasure of showing you Big Lebowski after our initial discussion on uh, Fargo for the first time, which is always a treat to see that, like with a friend and uh, with fresh eyes, of course. What movie was your first Coen Brothers movie? Probably No Country for Old Men. That wasn't my first Coen Brothers movie, but it was the first one I actually saw in theaters. And it kick-started my obsession with them in buying all of their movies and just watching one after the other. You know, I started with Blood Simple and worked my way up. But uh, Before Country for Old Men and Fargo is probably their biggest movie. Rewatching it again was a treat. It uh, clearly holds up. I, I was also a big fan of the show and surprised at it. I have very low expectations for this show to be anything of substance. But then I saw that the Coen brothers actually executive produced it, which gave me a little more trust toward it. And I'm surprised to say that I feel the uh, show, especially the first three seasons, are just as good as this movie. What was your experience with Fargo? So initially I saw it and I remember texting you after I watched it. And I was like, this is some weird shit. Because <laughs> you didn't really ask me to watch the movie. And as much as that, you're like, oh, the Coen brothers. I think that we were having a conversation surrounding A24. Yeah. And part of my impetus for wanting to get into the Coen brothers is because Denzel Washington has the new tragedy of Macbeth coming out directed by Joel Cohen, which is one half of the Cohen brothers. And it also has, I think, Frances McDermott. Is that her name? Yep. And that's Joel's wife. That's Joel's wife is in the movie. So when I, you know, wanted to kind of get back in and you had been talking about Fargo just kind of loosely as being one of your favorite TV shows and one of your favorite movies. So I said, let me check it out. And initially I watched it and I was like, oh, this is kind of weird. And then I thought, you know, it'd be good 
a good conversation for the podcast. But but importantly, I went back and watched it a second time. Um, well, before you go to that, because like for me, it's so easy to, I guess, take for granted how weird something is, because that's just what I naturally gravitate toward. So like in my domain of normally what I'm uh, used to watching, like Fargo almost seems normal, but you are correct. Like, I mean, or at least I very much get it. Like it is uh, in a lot of ways, like one could see the movie maybe as like anticlimactic or bizarre or um, it's a very dry movie in a lot of ways. Like how did you find this movie uh, weird? I didn't find the plot in of itself all that compelling. Like there were, I, I was expecting a big twist or turn. I mean, the, the guy being in the wood chipper at the end was a, a pretty weird kind of twist to it. The movement of the movie isn't necessarily in the action that's happening. It's in the character, those characters themselves. Oh, well, yes, absolutely. Like I would say that a twist can be a gimmick if it doesn't come up organically. And the Coen brothers, I think like one of their defining traits that you'll tend to find throughout all their movies, which are very diverse. Uh, you know, they've done romantic comedies, they've done Westerns, they've done crime thrillers, they've done surrealist movies, they've done stoner comedies. Uh, they really, everyone like is very excited to possibly even see a Coen Brothers horror movie someday. I know like my, um, you know, a friend of the pod, Ralph and I were talking about that with uh, the last short story in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs has a very like uh, great tinge of horror in it that, you know, just would be, it'd be just a dream for me to see the Cobras direct one of those, but running throughout all of that, you never get a gimmick. It's always character driven. Yes. And when we saw the big Lebowski, I was totally fascinated by every single one of those characters. Yeah. They're no, very dimensional. No country for old men. I was totally fascinated by every one of those characters. I just didn't care about any of the characters in Fargo. And I think... Not even Marge. I think, and that's because, and this is a conversation that I think that we had offline. I had seen the Marge character before. Do you know what I mean? So I'm looking at, I'm looking at Fargo in retrospect, right? Like I'm seeing something, versions of that, particularly, like we had the conversation earlier, Tommy Lee Jones's character in No Country for Old Men is Marge. Yeah. So I had seen Marge before. And so seeing her again in that way wasn't as compelling as it may have been for somebody who had seen it the first time. And I think to get Fargo, because Fargo is probably, and this is like everything that I've read and seen on YouTube subsequent to my second watching, Fargo is a clinic on how you are precise and care about every single detail and every single frame of a movie. Do you know what I mean? The movie, the the process in of itself is so is as probably close to perfect as you probably can get. The screen, the the way it's written is really tight. The actors and actresses are really tight. They miss not one single frame in this movie. I think that's why everyone loves working with the Coen brothers and respects the Coen brothers. I think that's like one of their defining traits. Like the way they write dialogue has like a I'm quoting Francis McDormand here, but it's like there's it's like music. There's a beat to it, especially in Fargo with the with the Minnesota accent. Um, and, you know, this like being a pr pretty personal movie for them because they both grew up in that type of climate. They really nail it. The characters here, there's a lot of buffoonery, but it's 
all pretty dimensional and um, there's a lot of solid people throughout this movie too. There's a dignity in this movie and I think there's a dignity in, in most Coen Brothers movies that every character is given due to how dimensional they are, like what you're kind of speaking to. They're given a sense of dignity you don't see often in a lot of movies. They don't. They never fall victim to actually caricatures. N- no, they don't. I would agree with that. I've been getting into a lot of art recently and trying to kind of figure out and understand and break it down. So one of the lectures I listened to recently was a lecture on the Mona Lisa. I don't particularly think the Mona Lisa, like just looking at it, is a great painting. It's not compelling. It's not like on its own, right? I'd probably like, if you asked me, I'd try to probably choose like Starry Night or something like that over if I was going to, like the of the major paintings that are out there, right? I'd probably choose one of those. However, when I got the full explanation of how complex the Mona Lisa really was, depth perception, who actually the Lisa person actually is and why she was chosen and how she's sitting, it just became so much more fascinating but not for the painting in of itself, but because of everything, all the thought and interpretation that went into the painting. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about at least this this Coen Brothers film. Well, you really see, I would say like I wrote um, one of the things I wrote down was that this is kind of the proto breaking bad. If Walter White was a schmuck who didn't have the intelligence that Walter White had, but had the milk toast life that he resented down to like their dress. He had the beige winter jacket mm-hmm. to match his brown tie and his like gray scarf, like where where Walter White, like everything he had was beige and boring and milk toast. And so they had like those dynamics and then it you know, it's like a normal, a normie entering like a world of crime or breaking bad, right? But in kind of true Coen Brothers fashion, they never actually provide you with how Jerry, William H. Macy's character, got in the hole in the first place. They never say it. No, they don't. And that's, that is pure Coen Brothers. The other thing that I think Jerry was missing that Walter White had was I fundamentally believed that Walter White cared about his family. It's not entirely clear. Oh, no, he doesn't. Well, uh, Jerry doesn't at all. Yeah, it's, Jerry's like, uh, he's about the, like, you know, like. But it's because he's not respected. Like, essentially, I feel that. Uh, but Walter White felt the same way. Like, maybe he was, but he often felt invisible and underappreciated. Which is where the similarity is. Like, Jerry is in the shadow of his father-in-law. Uh, he, that's his literal boss. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he sees Gene as just like a extension of this father-in-law he's grown to resent in his whole life. When his father-in-law's, um, right-hand man, I forget his name at this point right now, but he's like, oh, have, is, is Scotty okay? And he's like, oh yeah, I have a son. <laughs> You can tell he didn't even give the son a thought. It's such a funny beat in this. Movie. Yeah, like I think that's like one of the themes. Like nobody really cares. The the only couple that cares about anything is the Marge and her husband. What's the, the husband's name in this? Wade? Uh, Norm. Norman. Um, so like I think 
yeah, Marge and Norman are Norm are the only people that are like, and and they pay- well, they're the soul of this movie. But I think you see echoes of their strength in like one shot characters. But in terms of the main characters in the movie, they're the core. They're like the refuge amongst all of this chaos and calamity. So you know, to quote the Bible, we've all fallen short, right? Like I think of Marge. I was like, Marge was almost. But I don't understand for the life of me why she went out with the, the Asian dude. Like, I th- was was that her trying to f- like? Because she answers the phone super late at night or super early in the morning, however you want to look at it. She kind of doesn't really tell her husband why she's going to Twin Cities. She went to Twin Cities to see to to interview uh, William H Macy. Like she just kind of took advantage of an opportunity. So that's why she traveled. Yeah. So. Why not, like, if my wife was going to another city and she had to go out for work and she was going to see somebody had called her three o'clock in the morning, I couldn't get it out of my mind. Was Marge going there to, like, see something that she had missed with that Asian guy and then it got all weird? No, I don't mean, I mean, I think, like, Marge strikes me as somebody, well, like, this go, This kind of goes to the time, Let's let's backtrack for a minute and, like, just look at, the time this movie came out and just the movie's setting in general. So this movie's in contrast to the dynamic that's predominant in Hollywood in general that kind of focuses on bigger metropolitan areas. So this movie is, one, it's an independent movie. It's both written and directed by both Coen brothers, even though um, Joel Coen's normally given the directing credit mm-hmm. and Ethan is giving and they're both given the writing credit, that tends to be how it works. They are actually both directing at the same time. They've, they've always been like a pair. And not only that, but they also produce their own movies. Actually, and then interestingly, in some little bit of Coen Brothers history, in Blood Simple, their first movie, is where they met Francis McDormand, and thus uh, their relationship started from that. So all these people are coming up together, creating these... Uh, organic spaces and writing what they know, which isn't really a common thing at this time. And so rather than the affect you would get from living in New York or LA or something like that, you get this unassuming Minnesota area, North Dakota area that is left to themselves. And the clothing is pretty drab and just really meant to keep you warm because most of the time it's fucking brutally cold. Like there's that, when they go to that, um, what's that, re- that restaurant, that like a uh, buffet, mm-hmm. you know, all the chairs, the people have like their coats on them and like half their coats because they're long coats because it's freezing outside or like dragging on the floor because it's like, it's fucking salted everywhere. All the cars are like, chiseling out ice every time we have to get into them you know what i mean it's just like this drab kind of uh unassuming culture so the internet changed a lot of that because it put that visual affect and kind of imposed it on everybody and and you have access to it now no matter where you are Mm -hmm. so you have these weird standards to kind of compare yourselves that might actually have nothing to do with where you are um, so these are like, it's like an interesting moment because like right after 19 or even maybe while when this movie came out, the internet was just starting to be like more accessible to almost everybody at that point. 
So that I thought that was interesting, and I think that speaks to what you're asking. I think Marge is just an unassuming character who is very decent and truly knows who she is and is you're looking at a couple, including Norm here, that is content with a dynamic that they've established. So I think A, Norm trusts her, and B, Marge trusts herself. And she's like, oh, maybe we'll see how this guy's doing. And if it's something which she clearly recognizes what it is right when it happens to her, mm -hmm. she's like, nope, don't sit there. And she's like trying to be nice about it, even though she knows what's what. And mm -hmm. she's like, no, I just wanted to sit across from it because I don't like to turn my neck. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's kind of like, uh, that's how I read that. It's just, she's just unassuming and eh, took advantage of an opportunity to p potentially just reconnect with somebody. So in the realism that the Coen brothers try to create, do you, f could it, I guess it could always be possible. But I'm thinking that maybe Marge is a little bit too perfect. But I don't think she's perfect. I mean, she doesn't make like any grand mistake or even like she doesn't make a grand mistake in the movie. But her, her role, I should say, in this story just wasn't she didn't mess up in the, that time. In the lingo of sports, she's in the zone, right? Every she's hitting all shots. She's hitting, yeah, yeah like yeah, exactly. she's so she's totally in the zone. She's so far in the zone that she drives by. At the end of the movie, mm -hmm. the murder, actually, uh, like the, the the villain, in like almost in her, in her own way, saves the situation. Did you right? find all of that like happenstance believable? No, I, and that's the thing. Like, I that, that's what I'm surprised by. Just due to how tight the script is, I thought that there was like some contradictions in that. It seems like. Everybody else is being authentically themselves. And maybe Marge is being authentically herself. But I can buy everybody else being authentically themselves, but I couldn't buy Marge's character. Like That's I crazy. Like, yeah, I couldn't buy it. Like I I was like, well, you know, number one, we've seen since in in this kind of before and after Perry Mason kind of character that seems to kind of be exactly on point and exactly all the time and is... But this isn't a series where you're seeing like constant... Matlock, Perry Mason. Yeah, but those are know. those are shows. This is a movie. Like you don't see her other cases. You don't know that. It's not, it's, it's not important to the story. Like, like it's, it's, is it that hard for you to see a character like get it right once i think all right so i found like you know marge is a relatively attractive woman right i didn't find her love for norm believable well i think it's because you don't respect norm maybe um which to me is weird you've been taking issue with like the fact that the role of the father is often not considered important and in some ways the dynamic of Marge and Norm's relationship in this movie is showing his role of importance. Like it's likely that one could assume once this kid is had that Norm will be the stay at home dad after some time uh, Marge has with the kid on maternity leave, hopefully her precinct provides. Right. So, which, you know, probably a union. So she's probably good with that. But, but my point is, is that, 
the dynamic they set up, he's probably going to be the stay at home father. You know, I remember like the, like the weirdness you were kind of speaking to about your observation with, um, I guess their dynamic and it is, it's a role reversal, of course. What, what I appreciate about how this couple is represented in this film is kind of what I in general appreciate about the Coen brothers. They don't patronize you with platitudes or virtues that are maybe being espoused or communicated through these, through these characters. They just, they just show, they don't tell. And it's very, I think it's presented very honestly and matter of factly. And I think like in that delivery system, it's just very valid. Like uh, this was done in, in the making of a featurette on the DVD. Um, I think this was Francis McDormand talking about it, but like with Norm's character, she imagined that Norm and her both were on the force, but she happened to just be really good at her job and Norm hated it. So once they formed a family, he ended up quitting and finding his love for painting. And he just kind of became like, like what once was initially a hobby became like a full-time uh, gig for himself. And they live this quiet life and they're able to do it. So I think there's a difference between like being like a stay at home dad. I got the sense and that this may be me layering like my own whatever on norm like the overweight, balding guy who's kind of unassuming, kind of going along for the ride and doesn't really have much of an opinion. He's just quiet. I mean, he he's there for Marge every time he needs to be. He uh, prepares her breakfast. He wakes up. He has some jumps the car. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> need a jump. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, uh, he, he's he's there for every way. That's what's like. It's it's all in the small things. It's not this saccharine bullshit. It's not this platitude. Like my favorite moment, and it's the moment that's probably like, you know, it, it was one of the things I brought up. I had I probably haven't seen Fargo in like, I don't know, maybe eight years since uh, I rewatched it the, these next, last two times. Mm-hmm. And I've always remembered that line about uh, the three cent stamp. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah, Norm, they'll always need a three cent stamp. It's how you make use of the old ones you got left over. You know, and she kind of like grabs, she like tugs it. There's like a little mm-hmm. tug she makes of his arm. It's just like, it's fucking perfect. Like, that's it. That's the special sauce right there. You know, I think maybe I've been jaded. I just am having a hard time imagining that's true. Think and that I le- think that speaks to the affect that has been infiltrated upon us due to things like the internet. But I mean, I think it's also just personal relationships that I've had. Like, I think, I guess it's hard and in, in, in maybe, and this is where I, I would take the Coen brothers to tasks. Like, in, 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 or maybe I need to just meet people from Fargo, whatever the case, maybe somewhere in between. But I don't know of a relationship where he is that, the guy is that flaccid and she's just happy with the three cent stamp. Like, But why are you, one, like, he still won something. Why do you see him as flaccid? It's so I, weird. It's so because he goes ice fishing. 
When was the last time you fucking went ice fishing? I have I've never <laughs> been ice fishing, but I've never been to a place where it was actually cold enough to go ice fishing. But you know what I mean? But by, yeah, by I mean is like why do you see him as weak? I see him as weak because that's the way he's just quiet. He's quiet, unassuming. It's not none he of that's doesn't, weakness. It, he's like I, I like I said, it's just it's not something that you can necessarily explain. Like I I see Marge as <laughs> The figurehead in the relationship, the leader of the relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't see like Norm, no, I don't see Norm as have. I, I didn't see him as having any like, like. He was just there, like like I don't. He but made the eggs. He wasn't the role in the story. Your reaction kind of speaks to when I was taking you to task in like I think our network, our episode on network, when we were kind of using that as an opportunity to possibly just kind of um look back at the election and reflect on that a movie like this i think is actually important and i think we need in some ways in terms of like what actually movies can offer there's a lot of dignity to these characters the male cop who gives marge the phone numbers that are from the twin cities when they're at their lunch he eventually chases a call that a person made thinking they might have a lead, right? Mm -hmm. And he has that conversation outside and they're just shoveling snow. That conversation, I think, is such a perfect example of that dignity. Because <laughs> there's that really funny line where he's talking Steve Buscemi's character. And I love, like, <laughs> this movie feels like... <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if, um, like, Buscemi, at some point in time, like you know, said to the Cohen brothers a story where someone called him funny looking mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, that's good. Let's, just, <laughs> let's have every single character in this movie refer to him as funny, funny looking. looking. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, so there's that, but the, the language and attention to detail and this character's one scene throughout in the whole movie, you could see that he's very deliberate and strict and making sure that he is reporting the right information. He's not hyperbolic. He's very matter of fact. He's very unassuming. Mm. And and I think that that is more normal than atypical in those areas. And lately, I think, as things have become increasingly polarized and, you know, when these big companies realized that controversy is even more profitable than they could ever have imagined when social media took place. They, you know, just aggravated all these wounds and now we're left with these kind of extreme affects. Like, it's like our representations now are more caricature than they are organic in a lot of ways often. And I just think that something like this kind of stands in direct opposition to that. So you're saying that Norm's character is probably more ordinary than we would realize. Yeah. The same goes with like William H. Macy's desperation and pathetic qualities. And I think in the in the cultural contrast at the time really present in the in this movie is Steve Buscemi is like clearly like I mean, you know, you know that's just because everyone knows this about Buscemi, but he's so fucking East Coast. Mm -hmm. And he is in this movie. Mm -hmm. He contrasts all of the politeness by being this like blabbermouth who curses all of the Bribes time. Bribes cops and... And it was just so obvious about everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he called me a jerk, but he didn't say the word jerk, if you know what I mean. Yeah, know what you mean. You know, like, <laughs> he's just... He's just 
desperate man. So it's Jerry and Carl, that Carl, Carl, Steve, Buscemi. Yeah. Um, I think they both have that same, I guess, desperation. I think it's, it's and it's I think bitterness too. It's bitterness yeah. from kind of being ignored and not having people. They think people should see them a particular way, and they're not seen that particular way. So there's kind of some resentment, except. Steve Buscemi's character, Carl, actually acts out the resentment, whereas I feel like Jerry's character internalizes it. Well, and that goes to the Minnesota nice. Mm-hmm. Um, Storm Air, the guy who plays, he has such a weird name in the movie, I forget it, but you know, the, the silent uh, partner to uh, Buscemi's character, he said that in most polite communities, often you will find the most horrific acts of violence. And it's almost like uh, a uh, societal release valve, you know, um, where if you have all this passive-aggressive and internalized anger, it's going to come out in weird ways that are often unexpected. But I feel like that that was only Jerry. Like everybody else seemed well not everybody else but a lot of the characters seemed pretty expressive the uh the the father-in-law was pretty expressive about how he felt um he was but it's like you had to be tuned to it like i mean and obviously like he was like he was pretty obvious like he was like yeah the uh, what what well he's like the wife and the kid are going to be all right when he talked about money. There's still that but you it's not to say there's not that insane politeness that's going on constantly. Steve Buscemi's cursing every minute, every second, whereas in the guy shoveling snow wouldn't even say the curse word. He just, he had to censor himself. There's all of the glaring smiles uh, at the airport when Marge is going to the Twin Cities. You know what I mean? Like every, there's the the smile that is like the end of one scene when uh, Jerry's checking out from his meal at the diner. They're constantly showing this polite way of life in this community. Um, rudeness doesn't require a curse word. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, no, I, I agree with what you're so, saying. So, like, I think it's a, there is no here. polite way to kidnap your wife. Like, I think, like, but I'm not calling that act polite. I'm just saying that the the community it happens in mm-hmm. has that dynamic. Y- yes, and I think that like. I think it's just a it's a, it's a matter of language and not necessarily a matter of intent. Like I think. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm so, talking about the language. I'm talking so, about the facade. So, but I think that like the facade only exists if you don't understand that it's a facade, and I don't think any of them deny that it's like they under like. It's just a way of life. It's just so so Jerry fully understood that his father in law was putting him down. It wasn't like oh I don't I don't kind of get that. Like he felt. Of course. Well, yeah, no, it's passive aggressiveness. It's not code. Well, I mean, it is a code, but like, you know what I mean? It's not, yeah, it's just indirect. Uh, so it's indirect. I don't know. I, Cause I kind of get the sense that it was, if you're in that world, it's pretty direct to you. Like you didn't feel like he was being, he was trying to withhold his feelings about you. He kind of told you how he felt about you. Who? Uh, like the father-in-law to Jerry. I don't think Jerry was at any point confused about how the father-in-law actually felt about him. Like, I think he fully understood, and it wasn't... Pa- I don't think he fully understood. I think if he fully understood, he would... Uh, 
I think a lot of what you're seeing is is um, subconscious behavior that from the out from like our outsider perspective viewing him is is fucking glaringly obvious. He goes in the the opening scene. He says that the guys are asking him why you won't get the money from your wife and father-in-law. He's like, because he's my father-in-law. They won't give it to me. Right? He knows where he stands in the pecking order. Oh, he totally does. He hate, Yeah. So he understands that his father-in-law, like... But 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 not of what you're like, why are you taking issue with the fact that I'm describing this polite culture? Because like, it is a polite culture. Because I think, like, there is this concept that people in the on the coast are kind of rude and abrupt, and that the people in these states, right, or in this area, in these areas kind of have this code of politeness and chivalry that I don't really think exists. Well, you added chivalry. Well, I added chivalry. I'm saying like uh, contextually how we understand it. Like we, there's this romanticization of middle America where they're supposed to be more polite. But that's what I like about the Coen brothers. They're not, like, or that's what I like about Fargo specifically. Like they're not, they're not glamorizing it. They're not even, they're, they're also not, presenting it as better they're just showing you these contrasts and i think like in this movie like buscemi is like the clear point of contrast throughout this movie like stomer's stoicism is like a point of contrast between buscemi but that's kind of like not what i'm talking about when i'm talking about like this general movie and i think that it's that matter-of-fact delivery system that's kind of um, part of the Coen brothers' like modus operandi, and that is—it's an honest way of storytelling. I think that one of the things I cannot deny is that the Coen brothers are probably one of the most authentic filmmakers, like in terms of getting everything down to— almost exactly what it would be like if you were with these characters, like— for instance, read an article about how, like, how hockey, how they, the, like, I think it was the Beavers or the Badgers or somebody. Gophers. Playing, Gophers are playing hockey and, like, the affectation about how people really experience it and how everybody's really watching it and how they don't just say, I'm watching the hockey game, right? They are very specific about what kind of team that they would be watching in that particular area at that particular time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the so the Cohen brothers absolutely, I think, get that right. You know that the authenticity of the characters. I don't think, for most of the characters, I don't necessarily think I question. I think that it's like the Marge character that's giving me some issues. Do you want to talk about the conceptualization of or good and evil through the lens of the Cohen brothers, particularly in this film? Like, there is, and I didn't pick up on this until. I started doing reading and reviews after I saw it. A couple of things that happened that I think are really fascinating. And so Marge and Norm, when they're in shots together, they're always almost side by side. Yes. Do you know what I mean? To express, I guess, I don't know if it's equality or affection. Yeah, they're on the same level. They're on the well, same. But I think both those things. Both. So they're essentially the only two people in the film that life tends to work out for, seems to work out for. Well, but there's also all the standby characters. They're just not primary. Like, everyone else is somehow involved in the fuckery that William H. Macy's botch plan creates. Otherwise, like, 
all the uh, escorts and prostitutes in this movie mm-hmm. are actually given like their own version of dignity without like hiding the scars, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like kind of some of them are kind of dumb or just kind of unassuming or whatever. There's plenty of characters that move through this movie that aren't assholes or involved in this. They're just not the focus. But there's plenty of um, surefire people in it. Like even the um, the the the, the kind of dumb uh, partner that that takes that that uh, brings Marge up to speed, kind of with the dealer plate uh, mm. thing. His character's kind of um, repeated as Bob Odenkirk in the first season of the of the show, who does a fantastic job. He's so aggravating. But you know, there 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 are some I think steady characters alongside them they're just not fo- focused on so of the primary characters and it's kind of hard to say who kind of is a primary character in this it's an ensemble cast it's for sure. ensemble. so the dad kind of is postured or positioned as like a villain and he kind of gets he's just a son of a bitch he, he is he, he's but you know what he has pretty good reason to be because william h macy is such a fucking ne'er-do-well schmuck like i wouldn't trust him with all that money either yeah, and and I would have probably just called the police, like you know, if you were the uh, if I was a father in law, I don't because I wouldn't trust him. The whole thing seemed weird. Like it makes but, sense why he made that decision, though. I'm not saying it was the best decision, but it's very believable that he made the decision he made. But he kind of gets—I don't want to call it a comeuppance, but well, that's the other thing. Like, it doesn't matter in this movie whether or not the father-in-law deserved it, it happened because of a bunch of different things that you see unfold. You know what I mean? It's just like sometimes life is as random as that. Sometimes you're just going to be working at a parking garage and all of a sudden Steve Buscemi's going to be up and like, open the fucking gate! <laughs> you know, And you're going to get shot in the face. That makes sense. You know, there's, <laughs> there's absurdity to it. I know, like I, like, I was trying to follow a thread that I had read, whereas of the characters like the good kind of one you know like even the son and you can and you can push back on this even the son who was kind of a jerk to his mom do you know what i mean scotty who was a jerk to his mom now it ended up with no parents well he was a jerk to his mom like like a typical teenager like i don't like the read i guess that you're picking you're 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 Seeing like yes, obviously like good and evils in this, but I actually think that the Coen Brothers are smarter than that, and more often than not, avoid those I guess obvious dichotomies, or they're so obvious they're not even like worth mentioning. Like one of the things I think that makes Marge and Norm so palpable. Well, actually, and Stormare said this too on the the featurette. He said, you know, it's important to depict ordinary people and you know a lot of shows these days that i think are finding a lot of their success like present are like um ordinary people having moment these small moments of triumph and and showing those depicting those small moments as big as they feel in those in 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 the um context of those characters and i think this is like this kind of is in that legacy of that type of thing and um i think that what makes that so meaningful in Fargo is that Norm and Marge are very human and that includes, they can also fuck up. Now in this story, they didn't fuck up and they're as like Francis McDormand said, they're like a 
like a a place of refuge in this in the amidst the chaos of this movie. But the father-in-law isn't. I mean, outside of being a son of a bitch, he's being relatively sensible. And I would say, like, probably my favorite Coen Brothers movie is No Country for Old Men. One, it's kind of like what really got me into them. And two, I think it is one of their best movies. And <laughs> that movie really challenges this interpretation people are having on Fargo. So this is... Uh... Anton Chigurh gets a fucking way with it. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I'm going to... Because I'm, I'm processing something you said, the importance of showing ordinary people. I don't know why that's important. The whole idea of that I've known and been able to live and, and, and I'm not, I'm processing this. So it's always been the story of extraordinary people or normal people finding the will to become extraordinary. It's will be, I think it's because uh, I don't, I don't mean like to flatten human experience so much when I say this, but more often than there are extraordinary people, there are either like extraordinary moments or like streaks, right? Like you're using like, I think the, I forget when you said this, but like the NBA as an example of like when you're on like a hot streak. The zone, when you're, you're in, in the, the zone. zone. Right, yeah, we said this earlier, right. And it's like, I think people uh, can tap in to the zone or in the pocket or flow state or whatever it is, or, or get on a streak. And I think there's more extra extraordinary things happen. And sometimes people are, and you got to make sure that you're there for it. And I think the way to do that is to fortify, build and do the work that enables you to be there for those moments when they happen. And I think that that's very ordinary shit that even the most, like basic of person does need to do in their own way. And I think that like, it's, I, I think it's why a movie like, uh, not a movie, like a show uh, like the office is so important to a lot of people. I, I might be speaking out of turn cause I haven't seen as much as the office, but I would imagine that the office is comedic, a comedic play on the normal. I think that, the majority of the humor in the office is kind of built around drudgery. If you're in a workplace where you're going in every day and seeing the same people and like most jobs, like you, you take on your rote procedures and you can kind of operate on default settings. It's very boring. So like there's these little moments that take place in any workplace where those types of things, um, can really change your your day, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, like, the, the the office capitalizes on that. That's, I think, a big source of their humor. Sometimes they go really big and kind of, you know, change that up. It's a, it's a television show that sometimes uses improv. It's not, like, the most strict and austere of shows for sure. But I do think the office is dramatically different, even though it's in the same camp of television, as, for, say, like, Parks and Rec. Mm -hmm. Parks and Rec is very cute. It's very, um, it's way more cloying than The Office ever is, even with like the Jim and Pam dynamic. And I think there's more of a lie happening 
in Parks and Rec. And I like Parks and Rec, don't get me wrong. But The Office, on the other hand, I think actually like handles darkness a little more responsibly and is a little more realistic because it you it harnesses that uh, reality for both dramatic and comedic purposes that have some pretty authentic results. So in that sense, we're not obviously talking about the office, we're talking about Fargo. I see like the three cent stamp as like a great little triumph in this ordinary world that more people than not will find relatable. So I, I'm still trying to process the Coen brothers spending all of this time getting ordinary people exactly right. Like, and why in their mind, like, is it just so the audience can find them relatable? And that way, and that may be my issue, primary issue, because I don't relate as a black man probably, or just as an individual to anybody in this movie. Like, I don't find, like, I, I can't see myself really in any of the characters. I don't feel connected to anything that they're doing or particularly saying we were talking off mic about how lately your job, which most of the time in your life, like the majority of your decisions have been focused on your career. Mm -hmm. And you've seen that as your primary factor in how you define yourself. In the past like six months, you've been feeling like you're in this malaise. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the malaise you're experiencing is, you know, often what I would call like mild existential crisis. And it's because you're fortunate enough to be, to have a job that you can support a family on. And um, these past six months, it has been moving into the background as you focus on uh, more personal creative endeavors, this podcast being one of them, alongside your family. Two, much grayer. Uh, more subjective areas that you can kind of meander in and uh, explore. Mm -hmm. And it, it becomes a lot more nuanced in how to suss out. So I just feel like a as time goes on, you're going to, I think you're going to find these people a lot more relatable. <laughs> <laughs> for, well, for example, right? Like Marge is someone who is very good at her job. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're, we're so used to seeing in like movies these days, right? How someone starts. We'll go to the before trilogy, right? You're always used to seeing before sunrise. And that's most movies, just this beautiful moment, right? And then they like it either ends in them getting married or like them going actually like going on a date or living together, whatever the case may be. But it's rarer that you see someone in like the middle of their life having already figured it out. But then a circumstance hits them. Like in No Country for Old Men, and it's slightly different, but still a similar archetype that Marge inhabits with Tommy Lee Jones's character, he's someone on his way out of his job. His job is no longer mattering. And he's feeling just cast by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, like, shouldn't this woman be in the FBI or running the police in North Dakota or something like she was so, but why is careerism the only way forward? I think it's not necessarily careerism. It's 
what is the best good that Marge could be doing with her talent? And and maybe you could argue that she's there in Minnesota where you, I mean, in, I don't think the North Dakota, where she might get a murder once every 50 years. But, you know, Marge, you could take yourself a little bit further south and probably solve all the murders. Do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah, but who wants to see that much murder? Like, I mean, she has this like, like she doesn't seem I to be phased by it. Like, I she's very she's... like stone cold about like you would think the way that she sees this thing playing out, like her complete lack of emotion as she sees death. I don't think it's lack of emotion. I think it's again, it is that matter of factness. Like, listen, I I, I haven't grown up in the Midwest, so I can't speak to it that much. But based on what I'm gleaning from all of my various representations I've seen, and also the family that I have in those areas. In areas like that, right, that's a little, it's a, it's suburban for sure, but it's almost rural. Like, we would imagine a Twin Cities as suburbs to us, right? Mm-hmm. But like being by near Philly and New York. This is just a funny side story. So we were, I went to a baby shower in Stonewall, Louisiana, which is the middle of nowhere, Louisiana. And they were trying to give us ideas about what to do with the family. And they were like, the big city is Shreveport. You want to go hang out in Shreveport, Louisiana, right? That's kind of the same context, right? Like, right. Like, we'll, we'll, so we go to Shreveport and there's a Macy's there, nothing else. Do you know what I mean? But to them, that's like the the biggest thing in the world. But I feel like also in those communities, they have a very different understanding of how violence works. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if in Marge's upbringing, she went out hunting with her fa- with her father. Mm-hmm. Or at least witnessed her father, like, like, or you know, uh, or brothers or whatever, like, skin a deer. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, like uh, for me, like my neighbors were hunters, and I like witnessed them like fillet fishes and and skin deers and all that shit. But you know what I mean? Like they have a different relationship with violence that, like, maybe being from a city, you might be potentially more removed from in that way. Obviously, violence exists in cities too, plenty of it, but. You know what I mean? It's just like this relationship that's different. Yeah, and, uh, especially think... she's also has been a she's she's chief, so she has worked her way up. Where mm-hmm. this maybe this might be like her fifth murder she's seen in her entire career as an officer, but you know she's seen some shit. This is a th- you pull up like I live in a city where murders are pretty common, and it's still a big deal for a cop to find a dead body. And you have an officer down who's shot in the face, in the top of the head, and you have two kids that were murdered off the side of the road. No, of course, but he, she's not, I guess what I mean is, is like, she's not cavalier about it. She's not making jokes. She takes it all very seriously. She's like, you know, it's, she's just, she just does it in this way that is very Minnesota nice. Like in that, it's like, ah, it's a shame. Like one of the most like emotionally salient moments for me, and I, I always get like misty eyed when I see it outside of like the three cent stamp thing, as I've mentioned before, is when, you know, it's her driving and it's such a great shot of her face and Stormare's face in the background, just looking like apathetic and defeated. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, and it's such a beautiful day. Well, I just don't understand it. That was like her reckoning with this violence. Like she's she figured it out. She followed her leads. She did her job. Now 
she has to sit with it. And that's kind of like you, like you've made your successes, you've found your job, now you could just operate. And now that you're operating on these, you know, default settings, it has provided you this space that you now have to sit with your decisions. And that's not a bad thing, but it's weird. Part of my job is to negotiate contracts. And recently, I've negotiated a fair number of agreements that have saved the company a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I get excited when that happens. It's not like I necessarily am over the moon about what I do, because what I do on the day-to-day is super boring. But when those moments happen, there is an emotion. There is some emotion. Of course. Um, so, like, you... And she found... She got really excited when she stumbled upon the car. She's like, oh, oh, I found the car. It's there. It's my <laughs> car. She, like, calls it my car. She's obviously, like, she's mm-hmm. taking possession of the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, I see her kind of, like, she understands something that's going on with Jerry. She gets that feeling, you know, it's just... It's still kind of like, hmm, this is happening. Hmm. This is happening. I think that's the best way to be because she's not in denial. Completely stoic. No, but she's not stoic. She's just, she's, I mean, I'm not like, listen, I'm a very like loud, boisterous, like overtly enthusiastic human being. So like, I guess that might be because of that. I, why I admire it. I wouldn't call it stoicism though. I mean- Stormare is stoic. You know what I mean? Like Stormare is a sociopath, I think. Well, that, yeah, yes, yes. But I'm talking about his poise, not mm-hmm. not his actions right now. Mm-hmm. Marge is someone like I do aspire to be. She strikes me as wise and patient. And she knows when to act. Like you've seen the movie. Explorers ahead, I guess, for the movie Seven, if you haven't seen the movie <laughs> Seven. But there's an amazing scene. It's actually it's in a weird way. Seven came out in 1995. This came out a year later. I wonder if they thought about this scene when they were writing this scene I'm talking about with Marge. But there's a scene in Seven where um, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are driving uh, the serial killer in the back of the car. And it's obviously clear that Morgan Freeman is the wise detective here. And Brad Pitt's the young gun, hot-blooded, right? Mm -hmm. And Brad Pitt's soaking up the glory of this moment. And Morgan Freeman's old and hardened, but also knows no glory comes from this job like that. If you're doing this job for the glory, you're fucked. And lo and behold, he's right. Brad Pitt is super fucked at the end of this movie. But that whole time he's driving in a car, he's judging it. Now, Morgan Freeman's not like, everything you're doing is okay, serial killer. I'm not judging you. But he's wise enough to keep him to himself because he knows anything he'd say at this point right now will be in vain. But Brad Pitt's too naive and arrogant to just shut the fuck up about it. Mm-hmm. And in Fargo, like Marge is, she's having a very honest moment and she's not even like, I mean, she is like judging him, but she's she's not moralizing him. She's just being honest and saying, I don't understand mm-hmm. why you do the things you do. And it's it's so genuine. I mean, I, I, I aspire to be that genuine so yeah. Anyway, I think that uh, what else? What else do we? What, what else do we have? Um, I don't know. I, th- I think we did it. Again, drop us a line at boss and at racetraderpodcast dot com. Check the spelling in the show notes. 
And if you feel so inclined, subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, folks. Circumstances have changed, Jerry. Stay curious. Love you, Tyo. Love you, Tyo.